Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the um, seventh class of our 14-class structured study on the noble practice. Um, we started this with a uh, the Sakavabhanga Sutta, an analysis of the four noble truths, and then a sutta on each of those four truths. And then our last class was on the Magavabhanga Sutta, an analysis of the Eightfold Path, or the fourth noble truth. And then we'll conclude now with eight individual suttas on each factor of the Eightfold Path, beginning with um, right view. So um, Dhamma practice begins and ends, um, or you could say it begins with um, an understanding that my view is a wrong view, and all of that is reconciled in a developed right view or an awakened right view. And this sutta, the Kakaya Nagata Sutta, is specifically on right view, and it's it's so clear um, one of the difficulties I think we all have, and I did too when I first came across the Eightfold Path, is we're still caught up in a, a salvific kind of looking for a little magic and a little mysticism in our uh, so-called spiritual studies. When what we find in Dhamma practice is something that is just utterly practical. Um, and it can be sometimes difficult to just look at the practicality of what Siddhartha Gautama taught us 2,600 years ago that is still... Um, utterly practically relevant in each and every moment of our life today. The conditions are still the same. The Kakaya Nagata Sutta. The Buddha was staying at Savati at Jiva's Grove, Anathapandika's monastery. The monk, Kakaya, Kakaya Nagata, last name was Gata, approached the Buddha with a question. I don't understand right view. Can you teach me how right view relates to the world? Kakayana, the confusion and diluted thinking in the world arises from polarizing views. Sometimes I call it the, other people call it the prison of two ideas. We get stuck and it's either this or it's that. And once we decide on and get caught in that prison of two ideas, which is really what a lot of the world is stuck in today. It has to be, you know, these extreme views. Um, and what the Buddha realized is what he was caught up in extreme views and looking for his understanding and it wasn't until he came across the Eightfold Path as the middle way between these extreme views or the prison of two ideas was they able to understand what it means to be a human being. And he describes these polarizing views as there is a view of permanent existence and a view of permanent non-existence. And so um, when looked at closely, a lot of modern Buddhism and, and a lot of modern spirituality resolves in either the, um, the acquisition of eternal peace and salvation or eternal life, permanent existence, or much of modern Buddhism, because of a lack of understanding of Four Noble Truths, resolves itself in nothingness or emptiness. And those are really the two choices we have. And, and I'm not putting down any modern Buddhist practice. The point I'm making is that the Buddha taught something significantly different. That doesn't make these other practices wrong or um, in any way irrelevant. 
they're simply not Dharma practice. So we're looking at a, at a completely human-based experience and, and awakening occurs in this lifetime by understanding what it means to be a human being at the most profound level. So let me just go back one sentence. There is the view of permanent existence and a view of permanent non-existence. When the origination of confused and deluded thinking is understood and abandoned, from right view, then it is seen that non-existence does not occur. So again, the extreme view of a static place called non-existence that I might find myself to or aspire myself to. So, excuse me. When my um, practice was rooted in a certain school of Buddhism, I was grasping after and clinging to the notion of resolving my whole existence into a realm of emptiness or nothingness. And even though that never made any sense, and I don't think it could make sense to any human being to strive for annihilation, because it was what was taught to me and what most of the people around me were practicing, <coughs> I went along with that. And so my practice became um, an ongoing experience of chasing after something that wasn't humanly possible, but yet I did it. And I became more and more confused and more and more frustrated and so that caused me to bounce around in some other schools that would resolve in uh, one, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> one school resolved in something called Tulsita Buddhist Heaven, which is the, the Nagarjuna school and that school. Um, and then in some type of, um, or I should, I should say, or some type of heaven as a reward which struck me as very similar to Christianity. Again, nothing I, I don't have any argument with Christianity. It's just not what I was looking for. And so the Buddha recognizes too, I mentioned to Philippe earlier in the Nagara Sutta, the Buddha was caught up in these all these views of salvation or nothingness or emptiness, or you know, we heard the perception of neither perception or non-perception, all the rest of that, that the Buddha was taught and abandoned as not leading to his goal of understanding. So we're not striving for annihilation. We're not striving to um, establish ourselves in a realm of emptiness or nothingness, or we're not trying to get a reward after this life by being um, uh, practicing a certain moral behavior and then getting a reward for that behavior in a future life. The Buddha didn't like that idea, and I didn't either. Because what the Buddha recognized and what I realized I was looking for was what does it mean to be a human being? How can I understand what this means? Not what that means. Something that I couldn't possibly understand as a human being or experience. I wanted to know what it means to be me. And so did Siddhartha Gautama. And so does everybody here. Because it finally dawned on me that what would bring me the most peace and understanding was what is it, what's going on with me right here and right now? And how do I find that? How do I develop a mind that is present for this moment in my life, not a future moment? And when I first started looking at what the Buddha actually taught, I was beginning to get a glimpse of what the Buddha was, te was teaching through jhana meditation and the Eightfold Path was this developed right view that we're looking at tonight as a way of living my life moment by moment in this body, in a mind united in this body. <clears throat> 
excuse me. Without the need for this moment or myself in this moment or anyone else in this moment be any different than it is than what's occurring. Think about that. If you were able to actually do that, be at peace with yourself, the world around you, and everyone in it, what would be the quality of your mind? I'll answer it. Calm and peace. That is the Buddha's description of an awakened human being. Nothing magical, nothing mystical, nothing about um, clairvoyance or, or astral travel or anything like that. Calm, rooted in understanding of what it means to be a human being. And more specifically, what it means to be me, not you, me. I get an understanding, a profound understanding of what it means to be John Haspel in this life. And I realize that that's where all my power lies, within me, not out there. And it's where all my calm and peace resides, within me, not out there. Not by being a certain type of person that is worthy of salvation. No. What I am worthy of is understanding. What every human being is worthy of is to understand what it means to be a human being. And if we can do that, we'll realize the greatest gift any human being can ever give himself or herself. Again, think about that for just a moment. Instead of grasping after and piling stuff up, piling acquisition after acquisition as a way of describing myself to the world, what about just understanding what it means to be me and that that's good enough? In fact, that's all there is, isn't there, in this moment? I'll continue. Furthermore, when the cessation of confused and deluded thinking is understood and abandoned, right, the cessation of confused and deluded thinking is understood and abandoned from right view, it is also seen that existence does not occur. Now, the Buddha is not saying that we awaken and all of a sudden, poof, we're gone because existence doesn't occur. The idea of a permanent existence of me in this world does not occur. I understand the impermanence of everything because I understand the impermanence of me. I am born, I live a certain amount of time, and I'm gone. That's it. That's my human life. And it's all that we can understand as human beings. And it's all that I want to understand as a human being. What does it mean to have this life? Because for my whole life, first characterized by drug addiction and alcoholism, that's the obvious need for immediate escape from this moment because my life is so awful or I'm so confused. So I got to take a drink or a drug. But everybody is addicted to something that distracts them from this moment from being who they are. And again, whether it's achievement, whether it's TV or Facebook or Twitter or argument or ongoing political debate or incessant work or incessant golf, Kevin, Kevin's not incessant golf, or anything else that we obsess about so that we don't have to face me. <coughs> Excuse me. And human beings have created very powerful and very subtle strategies of ignoring me, which is another way of saying ignorance of four noble truths, because I reside within those four truths, don't I? And don't you? In that understanding of this is not me, this is not mine, meaning stress arising and stress passing away. 
is not making. We'll see how the Buddha addresses that. The Buddha continues, the world is sustained by attachments, by clinging to conditioned thinking and those conditioned views. Those are wrong views. But because I thought of it, and I thought of it in relation to me, now I'm compelled to, ma to maintain, or compulsed, I should say, to maintain that view. Simply because I thought of it. That's called clinging to the idea of me. But it's a fabrication, isn't it? Because I don't understand who I am. By clinging to conditioned thinking and wrong views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. One who has developed right view, and this is the description of an awakened human being, one who has developed right view no longer clings to attachments or fixated on conditioned thinking or self-obsession. It is understood that stress arising is simply stress arising. It may seem too simplistic for me to say that, but that's the most profound thing a human being ever said. Stress arising is simply stress arising. I don't have to take it personally. It is also understood that stress passing away is just stress passing away. I don't have to cling to stress passing away or find blame for the stress I just had or blame you or the world or politics or my lack or your lack. Or praise someone for taking your stress away. Or praise someone for taking, you should praise someone for taking your stress away, by the way, because he's just robbed you of understanding. It's just stress. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily ordinary. And yet we're so obsessed with stress that we lose our entire life by being distracted away from what is stressing us and grasping after what we think we need to stay happy. Greed and aversion rooted in deluded thinking, what the Buddha calls the three defilements. This is what we're talking about. Constantly grasping after what I need to avoid anything that is stressful. And that becomes the obsession of each and every moment in each and every idea. Because we wrap our ideas around our stressors and what we hope to avoid and hope to gain. Let me just read that to put this last line in context. It is understood that stress arising is stress arising. It is understood that stress passing away is stress passing away. In this, their knowledge is independent of other views. Independent of other views. It's a, it's, it's a view that is, is strictly focused on reality of Four Noble Truths. Does everybody understand that, what we mean by independence here? It's not clinging to any other ideology or any other dogmatic view or any other salvific view. It's just this. It's just what's occurring in this moment. This is, what, this is how right view relates to the world. Right? right view relates to the world in this way, in an impersonal view. The Buddha continues, the view that everything exists is a wrong view. And the view that nothing exists is another wrong view. Again, the prison of two ideas. It has to be one or the other, rather than everything is impermanent. Which, by the way, <coughs> is how scientists are describing the universe. The closer and closer we get to the Higgs boson, the, the, the idea that's supposed to explain everything, 
the closer and closer we get to everything is impermanent. And the reason why we can't get past that and make a determination that, yes, this is existence, is because you'll never get there. That we've, we've put the greatest scientific minds coupled with the greatest advances in physics. I'm talking about these super colliders. And it's really, it's fascinating physics and what they're coming up to and getting into the quantum ideas. But nothing it will ever be able to resolve in a permanent state because nothing is a permanent state. And they can keep exploding atoms against each other and getting to other, I don't, even, I don't even understand this, even though I study a little bit, getting to ever small, smaller particles of reality. But what, but what they, they can't get is when they, is when they, is when they interact with that smallest particle, what the scientists are, are finding out is just their thought about that particle is changing the particle. So who is the instrument of impermanence? I am. And the way that I think about even the most infinitesimally small particles of matter, I can't contain. So why bother? And if I can't do it with the most smallest particle of matter, I sure as hell can't do it with a buck or anything else that I might want to hoard, or an idea, right? Or a view of myself as a young man, or any other idea that I might have, rather than this is what I am in this moment. And therein lies my liberation. Popeye was right, I am what I am, and nothing else. And then whatever is occurring from the spark of that smallest atom to the most magnificent experience of humanity it's just me. There's no excitement. There's no grasping after. There's only understanding. There's only right view. Understanding stress arising and passing away. And the lack of stress in this moment. And being present for this moment. The view, the view that everything exists is a wrong view and the view that nothing exists is another wrong view. My Dharma avoids extreme views. I teach from the middle. I teach the eightfold path as the middle way between extreme views. This is why this path works for us. It's why it works for anybody that engages with it and integrates this path. Because it provides the liberation from those extreme views. It provides a liberation of the, from the prison of our own two ideas. It's either this or it's that. I'm either this or I'm that. I'm either great or I'm not great. And we don't usually accept not great. We always have to be great. But great has a lot of stress arise, <laughs> attached to it, doesn't it? But so does not so great, doesn't it? But when I don't have to be great or not great, when I can just be what I am, Popeye again, I'm at peace. And why shouldn't we? What else can I be right here in this moment than what I am? And that's true at any moment in my life. Even all those years that I thought I should be different and wished I was different, it never made me different. It just made me confused and frustrated and full of self-loathing because I couldn't make myself different. So those, those three possibilities only resolve itself in calm because understanding impermanence. From an understanding of impermanence, right? The very first teaching the Buddha gave, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, when he taught his, his five friends that he had befriended, 
and he, he gave the four noble truths, and Kandana understood. Kandana said, all conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation, meaning the conditioning that I put myself through, all of it is impermanent, and it's all subject to cessation in this moment, not in the next moment or in the next or the next future or after I do enough prayers or visualization, in this moment, stress arises and stress, is passed, stress passes away. And if I understand that in this moment, I'll stop grasping after or clinging to or attaching myself to any stressor. And what would that stressor be? Anytime I think that I need to be any different than I am in this moment, or this moment needs to be any different than it is. Why do I say that? Because how could this moment be any different? It's what's occurring. So it really would be insane for me to insist that this moment be any different than it is, wouldn't it? Or that I be any different than I am in this moment, because here I am. The thought that I need to be different in any way in this moment is rooted in self-loathing. It's rooted in a lack of understanding of who and what it means to be a human being. What does it mean to be a human being? It means that a human being has every one of the emotions that we could think of but doesn't take any of them personally. We don't lose the ability to feel through the Dhamma. We gain the ability to feel for the first time in our lives, but without the need for me to take it personally. So when I'm sad, I can be sad. When I'm angry, I can be angry. It now manifests as a, as a determination in this moment, rather than having to strike out at someone or at myself. When I'm blissful because I just saw a beautiful sunset, it's enough. I don't need tomorrow's sunset to be even better because I deserve it. Or anything else, a wonderful conversation with a good friend. Or a great bowl of turkey soup. And I'm done with it. And I send an email off and I say, it was great. And that was enough. Each and every moment is fulfilling. Why? Because I'm present for it. That's it. We don't need any other qualification for us to have this moment. And we don't need to justify this moment to anyone. It's ours because we're living it. The middle way shows that, the Buddha continues, from ignorance of four noble truths as a requisite condition comes fabrication. This is another teaching on dependent origination. From ignorance of Four Noble Truths comes a fabricated way of looking at the world. So again, there's no right or wrong or where did this come from, right? As a consequence of having a human life, the First Noble Truth comes into play. There is stress. Where does stress arise? From ignorance of Four Noble Truths, the Buddha is teaching us. So the resolution of that stress is understanding Four Noble Truths. The middle way shows that from ignorance of Four Noble Truths, as a requisite condition, comes fabrications. From those fabrications, as a requisite condition, comes consciousness. So we're not trying to figure out where my consciousness came from. I have it. I understand I'm a human being. A human being has something called consciousness. I don't have to go any further than that. I have it. I don't have to figure out where it came from, do I? That is just a distraction. For one reason, it can't be found came from but i can acknowledge yes i have a consciousness i think but now through this dhamma i'm understanding that because of a lack of understanding of these four basic set of facts four noble truths 
I've created a fabricated or corrupted view of myself in relation to the world. From ignorance of four noble truths comes fabrications. From fabrications as a requisite condition comes consciousness. So now I'm talking about not a grand cosmic consciousness. There is no grand cosmic consciousness in the Dhamma. We're just talking about consciousness in relation to four noble truths, which is ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. From that type of consciousness, as a requisite condition, comes name and form. The Pali is Nama Rupa, but that's what it means. Name and form. I've identified. I've given a name to this form. That's all it means. And there's, a, there's, there's books written about Nama Rupa. It just means, yes, you're self-identifying. Nama Rupa. I've given a name to this form. I've given a name. This is John Haspel, and I find that it's inadequate at times, and sometimes it's scary, and sometimes it's confused. And boy, what a mess this thing is. How can I fix it? I got to find salvation for this because it doesn't function well in the world. My God, I drank like a fish and I took all kinds of drugs and I got angry at my mommy and daddy and I stole gum one time and I get mad at people and I can't sleep well at night and I can't play center field for the Yankees. None of those are me, are they? There are things that I thought I should be rooted in the fabrication. How do I know what I can be and what I should be? Each and every moment, we always are what we should be, and we can't be anything other than what we are. We can create a fabrication about who we should be or who we could be or who we must be, we can create a fabrication about who we are and not want the world to see what we really think we are. We all do that, called self-loathing. Or I can simply understand that I'm a human being with a consciousness that got caught up in something, but now I can understand it. From that consciousness as a requisite, requisite condition comes name and form. I'm identifying with this. From self-identification, Taking things personally, from name and form as a requisite condition comes the sixth sense base. The five physical senses and that sixth sense of consciousness, right? So now from that, you can watch the pro progression from ignorance giving rise to fabrications, feeding consciousness, feeding the self-identification that is getting reinforced by the human senses. So my own human life is the riddle to how I got caught up in it. This is the description of it. Because I'm using my own senses to reinforce my own ignorance. And I've been doing it since I came into being and until I come to the Dhamma and disentangle myself from that way of, of thinking and that way of living in the world. Meaning being in a world that is always rooted in greed and aversion because of that deluded thinking, or living in the world from a place of understanding, peace, and calm. By understanding that all that I can ever be is a six-property person, and then whatever, however I choose to live my life. From the sixth sense base, as a requisite condition, comes contact. So now I'm coming in contact with the world. Again, this isn't, we're not talking about a creation myth or a birth myth. It, it, it's given that this is taking place. And now I'm starting to understand this process that my consciousness rooted in the sixth sense space is coming in contact with the world, meaning you, my thoughts, 
my thoughts about the world, the weather, all the things of the world, good, bad, and indifferent, all the conditions of the world, all the conditions in the world that I hope to be different, taking it personally, <coughs> I'm coming in contact with the world. Right? This is how human beings live in the world, isn't it? We have this physical body. We have a mind united in that body if we're well meditated. And our senses are what we use to be animated in this world. And so we can use our senses for good or for bad. We can either... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> We can either use our senses for understanding what's occurring in this moment, free of eye-making, or we can use our sixth sense base to continue eye-making and continue stress. That's the choice we have in each and every moment. And it's a choice that is liberated, meaning it's, it's not apparent to us until we... It's not apparent to us until we find a way to recognize this. And so we liberate ourselves by not taking things personal. From contact as a requisite condition comes feeling. So now I've come in contact with something. It's, it's aroused something in me. It's it brought a feeling up. It might be a feeling of attraction or aversion. But what happens if my mind is, is rooted in ignorance? From feeling as a requisite condition, now comes craving. Right? And we do it to myself because I decide in this moment I need to be 6'4 rather than 5'7 so I can play center field for the Yankees. Or I need to have three pieces of chocolate cake rather than just one. Or I need to have a prettier spouse or a more handsome spouse. Or I need to have two cars rather than one. It's never enough, is it? It's never enough for a person rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. But a person who is not taking anything personal, this moment is more than enough. That's called liberation. And it doesn't mean we, we, we lose the ability to live in the world and progress in the world. Meaning we might decide that we want to uh, put a time and effort into building a certain type of life. Fine. We don't take it personal, though. And we don't see it as as establishing a me that's better than you because of what I've done in the world. Because there's terrible pain in that, isn't it? Maintaining a view of me better than you. Again, and not, not to get into the politics of today, and I won't, but think about just that. If we could get over the need for me to be better than you, what would happen in the world? What would happen? There'd be what everybody always wants, peace. But it has to begin with a need for me to stop being better than you. And you knowing it, by the way. And making sure you knew it. Huh? Yeah, competition just, just dissolves. Doesn't exist yeah. But I'm just a human being. And guess what? I recognize there's another one just like me. And another one, another one, another one. And they're all like me. We've been trying to figure that out since we, since we were cavemen. And we can't do it. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, we haven't evolved at all in that way. We've made some great technological advances and we've, we've created some very intricate societal systems. 
but we haven't figured out how to stop competing with each other or that we do or that we should even want to stop competing with each other we think that life is a game it's a game of competition of me always being better than someone at least and look what it's done to, look what it's done to me until i stopped my life was never good enough you know i know there was a time in my life when i was living a vision of the american dream and I was still full of self-loathing. It still wasn't enough. I had the beautiful bride and a nice house, and I was buying a new car every year. And I was miserable. I was miserable because I couldn't stop going after more, and I couldn't understand it either. In the first few years when I was starting my business, like most people, you're going to work like a dog if, you, if it's your own business, and you probably have to. But I was 10 years in still working like a dog. And I couldn't understand it. I was, I was literally losing my mind. And it wasn't enough. And there was a series of things that took place that caused me to look at it, and I'm glad they did, to eventually realizing that I don't have to do anything to be a human being. That's a given. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Haspel gave that to me. I don't have to go any further than that. So it's up to me what I'm going to make of it. But I want to make of it with a common, well, I want to make what I make of my life. I want to do it now with a common, peaceful mind. Rather than something rooted in greed and aversion, I want it rooted in understanding what it means to be me. From feeling as a requisite condition come craving, from craving as a requisite condition comes clinging and maintaining. Once I want something, I'm attached to it. Once I decide, that this is part of me, I've given it a name, Namarupa, I'm stuck to it. I have to maintain it and I have to build on it. And I have to hide it from others so they don't get it. From clinging and maintaining as a requisite condition comes becoming. Becoming what? How did this start? Becoming further ignorant. Unless something come, comes along to interrupt this becoming, becoming further ignorant, rooted in craving, clinging and maintaining, I'm just going to continue that because that's what I've decided to do in my mind. From that becoming as a requisite condition, now comes birth. I put the word now in there. What is the Buddha talking about? He's not talking about physical birth, obviously. The context is so important. This whole progression the Buddha is teaching us from ignorance as a requisite condition of fabrications leading all the way to this point of giving birth to what? A moment rooted in ignorance. So that's our choice in each moment. Each moment of our human life holds a potential to incline our minds towards awakening or to continue ignorance. It's our choice. <coughs> Most human beings don't realize that they have a choice. And again, this is where the Buddha said, I teach this Dharma for those who just a speck of dust in their eyes. He didn't teach it. The Buddha didn't see himself as a savior. And he didn't teach his salvific Dharma. And that might seem selfish or mean-spirited, but it's just the facts. It's just the truth. It's just the middle way. The middle way is for those that choose to walk it. And those that don't choose to walk it, don't choose to walk it. It doesn't make them bad or evil or wrong or anything. Because those that don't choose to walk the Eightfold Path or develop the Eightfold Path are what? 
human beings just like me. And I don't have to concern myself with that, do I? What I do need to concern myself with is, is my mind calm and peaceful in this moment? Because if it's not, I know I'm caught up in eye making. I know I'm giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. And how do I know? Because I'll feel it. I'll feel the stress. I'll feel the eye making in this moment. Then the Buddha says from birth, from giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance, as a requisite condition, comes aging, sickness, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. So wait a minute, all those things came by long before this. No. By me taking things personal, by me thinking that this life is personal, I am going to be stressed by aging, by sickness, by death, by sorrow, regret, by pain and distress. But by understanding it, I'll simply recognize that Aging, sickness, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair are simply parts of having a human life. For me to have this incredible human life, I have to agree to age, or at least understand that I'm going to age. And for me to have this human life, I have to understand there's going to be periods of sickness. It's not good or bad, and it's not like that's a, um, uh, that's a stoic trade-off. Okay, you know, I got I to gotta be sick because I'm having a human life. No, it means I don't take sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, any of it personally. It's of no consequence. Why? Because it means I'm having a human life. If I'm sick, okay, human beings get sick. If I'm getting older, you know, it's because I've lived 67 years. That's the only explanation I need for it, right? I'm 67 because I'm 67 because I've lived 67 years. That's not bad. I'm not rushing towards extinction because I'm closer to the end than the beginning. 67. Now I'm 67 in another, another second in my life. But the moment is meaningful. Why? Because I'm present for it. Not because of what, I've, what I'm avoiding in this moment. Or what I might be taking great strides to avoid in this moment. Right? People do all kinds of strange things to not age or at least show the appearance of aging. From becoming as a requisite condition come birth, from birth as a requisite condition comes aging, sickness, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. Such is the origination of extreme views and the entire mass of confusion, delusion, and stress. Such is the origination of extreme views and the entire mass of confusion and stress. Then the Buddha says, now, from the remainderless fading and cessation of that very ignorance comes the cessation of fabrications. This is how we undo what dependent originations teach us that we, that we did from ignorance creating stress and suffering. From the cessation of those fabrications comes the cessation of consciousness. Again, we don't cease the ability to think. From the cessation of fabrication come the cessation of consciousness means there's nothing now left to feed that ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance. Fabrications have ending. Now that consciousness is simply a mind united in its body. From the cessation of consciousness of conditioned thinking comes the cessation of name and form or taking things personal, giving a name to everything. From the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of the sixth sense base. So now I'm using my sixth sense base, my five physical senses and my consciousness, the way they were intended. 
as a reference point to what's occurring, period. Nothing else. Does everybody get that and understand it? That's what our lives become and what our lives should be moment by moment. A well-concentrated, skillful, and mindful reference point. This is what's occurring in each and every moment. And it doesn't matter if we're on our cushions or in a class or driving a car or having an argument. Be a reference point to it. Because that's all you'll ever really be. Everything else besides being a reference point, a common peaceful reference point to this moment, is a fabrication, is eye-making. And you know it because you can feel it. We have this wonderful ability to feel. It's not bad to feel. It's how we animate ourselves. It's how we understand that I'm alive in this moment, free of eye-making. Why? Because I feel peaceful. And I recognize it because my mind is well-concentrated enough to know it. From cessation of the sixth sense base comes a cessation of contact. The world is no longer vexing or stressful to me. Things are happening as they always did, but because I've let go of eye-making, from the cessation of the sixth sense base, sixth sense media comes a cessation of contact. Contact with the world no longer affects me in any way. Think about that. No matter what occurs, my mind is calm and at peace. From the cessation of contact comes a cessation of feeling. I'm no longer driven by my feelings anymore. I own my feelings. I'm sovereign. I'm a mind united in its body that knows that a human being feels and doesn't take it personally. And know that a human being thinks about those feelings. And those feelings, those thoughts aren't personal. I am simply a reference point to what's occurring. From the cessation of feeling comes a cessation of craving. Now I truly am a reference point to what's occurring. I don't need anything else except this moment. From the, <clears throat> from the cessation of craving comes, comes a cessation of clinging or sustenance. Clinging to what? Clinging to ignorant views. Sustaining ignorant views through what? Another ignorant view. Another moment rooted in ignorance or another moment rooted in awakening. From the cessation of clinging and sustenance comes the cessation of becoming further ignorant. This is how we do it. Bringing to cessation the sustenance and the clinging to a view rooted in ignorance, to nama rupa, to name and form, to taking this personal. From the cessation of becoming further ignorant comes the cessation of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. Do you see? That's awakening. The cessation of becoming in parentheses, further ignorant, comes the cessation of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. It's up to us. From the cessation of that type of birth, giving birth to another moment of ignorance, then aging and death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair all cease. Now, the Buddha is not saying we live, to, live forever. Aging ceases. The reaction or the, the confusion or the distraction of aging ceases. The distraction, the distraction of death that most people have ceases. We simply understand that, yeah, I'm going to die. And it might be in the next moment. And because it might be in the next moment, I want to awaken in this moment. I don't want to wait anymore. 
because I finally understand I get one human life to deal with. And if I want to be awakened in this human life, this human life, I better do it now. Because no one knows when the cow's going to get you. Remember Bahia. No one knows when our last breath is going to come. So let's do it now. And that's how the Buddha taught the Dhamma. Not in seven years or six years or five or four or three or two. When done, when it's practiced perfectly, and anybody can do it perfectly, awakening happens here and now in this lifetime. Then the Buddha says, such is the cessation of this entire mass of stress and suffering. Such is the cessation of this entire mass of stress and suffering. Such is the cessation of this entire mass, this, of stress and suffering. Because all the stress and suffering in the world is occurring within each and every one of you, or it's not. There's no stress out there, is there? There's really no stress in the world. I was talking to someone, in, uh, you happened to say she was in Chattanooga, and I heard from the news earlier today that there's tornadoes coming. And we just had a, a brief talk about it. She, I happened to mention I was a meditation teacher. And she said, I guess tornadoes aren't going to bother you if they come your way, will they? And they said, well, they shouldn't bother you. Just take a breath, unite your mind and your body. And she did it over the fire. And she said, you know what? I feel better already. And she did because her mind, at least in that moment, was united in her body. And there is no stress here and now. Even if a tornado is coming, we recognize, okay, I hope this isn't the end. But if it is, it is. And if I happen to die in a tornado in this moment, I'm not the first one that that's happened to, is it? Why should I take it personal? And so I hope that I prepared myself well for this moment, for when I see that tornado coming down, and I can say, yeah, I'm at peace. Because what else could be more important or more valuable in this moment than to be at peace? To have one moment of understanding of what it means to be a human being is the greatest gift we can give ourselves ever. That's the end of my class. So that is a teaching on right view. It resolves uh, right here and right now. It resolves in being a reference point to my life each and every moment. Um, who's first? I can't remember. Is it Brian? Right, Brian? Absolutely. Okay, you're good. <laughs> would you, would you um, care to add to that? Well, I, I did love the, the dip of the toe into the pool of quantum mechanics. Um, and just a, a quick note on that, that there is there is something called the observer effect. Yeah. That that matter can't cannot exist unless there is an observer. So you are quite literally the creator of the universe because you're here to exhibit or you're here to you're here to witness it, I guess. Yeah. Um, the other thing too that, that struck me going through this is the 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 whole reference point. We're always a reference point. Uh, it's whether or not we've we've sufficiently gotten anatta anatta out of the way. Yeah, that's and right. it, it's anatta that's the one that's suffering and clinging and, and dealing with the uh, stress. If you you're right, it doesn't exist for except for what we we give it sustenance yeah. for so yeah. thank you john thank you brian that was great jeff how are you well thanks john 
Um, yeah, the point of reference, I think, is uh, it's home to me right now. It's it's important lesson for me to remember. It's my point of reference is a little unstable these days. Um, I I don't know if I I, I translated as stress or just instability. I suppose it's the same thing, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because a, a, a stress-free calm mind is not uh, instable. Yeah, it's yeah. stable. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, we can give it all kinds of um, uh, different descriptions, but yeah, sure. An, an instable mind is a is a stressful mind. Yeah, yeah, and I don't I don't regard it as mental instability so much as just dealing with the physical. Um, changes constant changing yeah so. yeah can i can i talk a little bit about where you're coming from to explain that or would, if, if you'd rather i didn't it's okay too oh no no that's fine it, sure uh, jeff is going through some um what i want to jeff is going through some uh treatments in a hospital and so he's going through a lot of physical changes as the treatment goes he's working through his body is that a good way to describe what you're going through yeah 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 yeah, I've been through a bunch all year long, and this is, a, well, specifically radiation, and that makes your body get a little crazy. Yeah, so, a lot crazy. It's unpredictable, you know. And, and you haven't lost your practice through the whole thing. That, that's uh, remarkable. It, it's very difficult. Uh, the jhana practice, part of it's fatigue. And yeah. the past few days have been the first time I have been able to not fall asleep in, in, in trying to meditate for 10 or 15 minutes. Wow, so good for you. Yeah. So, you know, it, I'm, yeah, my practice is uh, still there. Okay. Uncle Sid was right. Huh? Sickness and aging. Thank Jane, you. how are you? Thank you, Jeff. I'm fine, John. Um, I'm just going to like your Popeye reference. I am what I am, and I don't need it to be any different. So, yeah. I should have just brings me peace. When I was watching cartoons, I knew I knew more <laughs> then than I did. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Thank you. My friend Philippe, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, what was what I was thinking about is that, you know, the middle way and coming from the Vajrayana and stuff, I mean, there's so much focus on this Shunyana and teachings on emptiness. And 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 you just said it, the Buddha didn't say that. <laughs> he just said there's, you know, that extreme view. And and it's, yeah, I was just quite profound how simple, how simple it all is when you strip back that, you know, the way it's been. Manipulated a little bit, and, and and I'm not sure why, but that's not my role to work that one out. But um, yeah, I just love the simplicity of what of it all, and um, bring, bringing it back to um, you know, dependent origination, the three marks of existence, and uh, four noble truths. I mean, that's all it is, really. Yeah, you know, all of the teachings just come back to there all the time. Which is so profoundly yeah. simple. So simple, it's ridiculous almost, you know? It is. I, I agree. Um, the, uh, 
the more magical and mystical um, developments in Buddhism. Have you read the article on the website on the Pali Canon, Philippe? Yes. Yeah, because that gets into how this, even during the Buddha's lifetime and shortly thereafter, there was um, uh, a strong desire to change what the Buddha was teaching. And even during the subsequent councils, uh, after the first one, um, yeah. it was during the second Buddhist council that there was a split and the, you know, the Mahayanas were going one way, the Hinayanas were going another. And it's because they wanted to maintain a, a mystical um, religion rather than this, this simple uh, teaching, you know, about what it means to be a human being. But again, that's that's just what human beings do. It's part of mm. our understanding as Dharma practitioners. Yeah, that's just what occurs. So. Mm. When did you join us tonight? Yeah, I what? think I think the the becoming. If we can just go over the becoming a little bit more, because I sort of. Oh. Uh, if we got time, just for a few minutes. Yeah, sure. So I the name of the 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 one book I wrote is Becoming Buddha, Becoming Awakened, because it the in this sutta and many others, the Buddha teaches us what we are becoming in this moment will determine what this moment will bring for us. So if in this moment I'm clinging to a fabricated view of myself, I can only become further ignorant. But if through the Dhamma practice, through jhana meditation, deepening my concentration so that I can integrate and hold in mind the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path, as we just talked about, now I can let go of that becoming further ignorant and I can become awakened. So it really points to the potential of this moment. What am I going to become? And it's a, it's a, um, it's a useful question to ask ourselves. What am I becoming in this moment? What am I putting on wow. myself? Do I want to become awakened? There's a way to do it. Or do I want to ignore that, ignore my own ignorance, and just become, continue to become further ignorant? Which in my experience has yeah. got more and more painful the more I did it, the more I played that game. Mm, so we're, we've got point. We've got a moment there where we can be empowered and so choose which way we're going to go. Yeah, with that awareness yes. and the introspection of what's actually happening in my mind right now, I can choose the path where I go: more suffering or come back to stillness. Yeah. Yes, and you see why the Buddha taught jhana meditation and no other because you need concentration to do that. Yeah. And nothing else will bring it. If you don't have a well-concentrated mind, you're not going to be able to practice wise restraint in this moment. You won't be able yeah, to well, be that reference point. Yeah, it's also synergistic, eh? Or the dependent. I mean, it's all dependent rising, you know, like like it will dominoes and then they can reverse back the other way. Yeah, as in this suit and many others too, where the, the Buddha teaches it that way. So mm, yeah, well, thank you. Been awesome. I'm glad you joined us, Philippe. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll try and come next week. Good. Okay. Sheila, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Let me think of tonight's class. I can get both of you on. One, <laughs> I, it, it was very, very enlightening. And it it just calls to mind our, our tendency to complicate and yeah. overanalyze and, and grasp and go in all sorts of directions when it's just about letting go. Yeah. Simply just letting go and being here. Uh, takes practice. Yeah, that's, takes that's practice. what they call it, practice. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate your teachings. Thank you. Yeah.
Thank you for being here, Keila. Julia. Hi. Thank you so much for teaching us. I never regret driving all the way here. <laughs> um, but if I, um, one moment. If I could just not want anything or anybody or any moment or myself to be any different, then that's when the competition ends. Yeah. Uh, and that is true peace. Yeah. Um, and you've experienced that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, but, you know, of course, the more I'm surrounding myself, you know, with work or I'm like, I love my job so much, but I do experience me wanting to be different because of the sh stress that's around and I get, I feel overwhelmed instead of just being a reference point to it. Yeah. I, my mind likes to make, I hope this is making sense. You know, what you were just saying like the mind, once the mind starts to uh, think about what's happening, <laughs> then that's when I want things to be, like I yeah. want things to be different, this yeah. person to act differently. Um, but I noticed that at work a lot. Uh, yeah. Instead of just experiencing it, like there was actually the situation where it was really overwhelming, and you can tell that you know I work in a detox, right? And um, a couple of the nurses were stressed. I was stressed at this certain moment, and you know everyone handles their stress in different ways, right? Yeah. So someone's handling it with humor and sarcasm, and then I'm not getting a direct answer, so then I'm, like, wanting him to be different than he is, and it was, um, and then someone was, like, speak up, like, telling me to speak up, and then that's them wanting me to be different yeah. than I am, so it was, like, this, this, <laughs> this circle of, and I was stressed for, like, a couple hours, and not experiencing the stress for what it is. It was my mind that just kept going on and on and on. But, you know, coming here, I'm thinking of that situation. And now, like, when it happens again, just, just take a breath and be like, yeah. I'm experiencing stress in this moment. And it doesn't have to be a bad thing. And, yeah. you know, this practice gives me that, and it's wonderful. And what you just described is Dharma practice, meaning you, you can look back on your day and say, yeah, I lost my mind for a few minutes here. But now you see how, how you can not lose your mind in the future. And if you do lose your mind tomorrow, it's okay. You just get another one. And it's, it's so, and it really is that simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 you know, I've had people yell at me for saying it's so simple, but it is. It, it, is. Well, it doesn't mean it's easy. It does, take, it does take practice. It takes determination. It takes the, the six factor, the six factor of the eightfold path. The Buddha put it in there for a reason, right effort. To remind us, yeah, you got to keep going. You got to, you got to have some determination. But it's not hard, though. It's, it's the most gentlest thing we can ever do for ourselves is to understand. It's, yeah. it's not easy because if you're not, God, it's easy. if you're not in right view, you're not going to use all these the mechanism of this practice to have right. insight to the three marks. If you're not doing that. All this other feel-good stuff that you're experiencing will not bring you any closer to cessation of suffering. You're right. Thanks for making that point. It, it does take the entire eightfold path, though. It's not about it's not about feeling one way or the other, is it? It's just it's just about doing the work. Um, 
but also experiencing all those things that a human being wants to experience to be alive. We're not supposed to feel just one way. I mean, again, going back to my addiction day, that's what I, you know, day after day after day after day after day after day after day, bottle after bottle, bag after bag, I only wanted to feel one way. And I couldn't describe it because it was a mess, but, you know, I, I almost killed myself a few times because I insisted on just one feeling, which was wasted. But we do that with all kinds of things. You know, addiction is just one extreme. I was married to a, a food addict. And she was doing the same thing. I, I see people in all kinds of other compulsive endeavors. It might be work. It could be, I keep going back to golf and Kevin. Um, it could be whittling. I haven't played in three weeks, John. Oh, I got to stop using Jeez. it as an example. I let but it we go. All, we all do. We all distract distract ourselves from the fact that we're distracting ourselves. We don't want to. We don't want to recognize it. And these, um, the, the, since you know, I work at a detox, and it's like I can I do recognize when I'm wanting this person to be different. I'm doing an assessment, let's say, on this person who has an addiction problem, and me, I, I can tell when I'm like getting into feeling too much, uh, taking their stuff personally and me wanting them to just stop using. But when really I can just be there, which I've experienced both, when I can just be there, not wanting them to be different and like creating that space yeah. will allow me to have a peaceful mind as well. That's right. And um, me not trying to want them to be different so I could save them or I could fix them because it's, they don't need to be fixed. It's it's uh they can't be fixed. Yeah, no, it's yeah. not yeah. It's yeah. It's just like that. It's just being present for this moment, you know. I mean, I mean you have a particularly high stress job, but you have the tools to deal with it too. Thank you, Julie. Tell my teacher wrong. I was looking at the structure of the sutra, and it was quite amazing. So we have ignorance, wrong view on the one side, and we have stress as the end result. The person we take in stress. In the middle of that, independent origination, that's what's in between there, yeah. lies craving. Just that point where we don't accept reality. It's not good enough. Yeah. I'm not good enough. It's not good enough. What's coming to me from the world is not good enough. Yeah. No matter what it is. That's the craving. That's yeah. the thirst, the time. Yeah. And here comes the four number truths, starting with there is stress, folks. First thing. Yep. And where does the focus lie? Craving. The rising of craving, passing away of craving, leading to how do we expose our craving by being on the eightfold path. Yeah. That's where we can recognize it, and that's where we can abandon it. Yeah. That's, that's the whole structure of both of those. Recognize it and abandon it. Yeah.
And that's again, that's power practice, right? The clarity of it is just wonderful. Yeah. This this one 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 sutta of thousands again, you know, and, and others again, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is one of my favorites, but I think yeah, I say yeah. that's just about every class. It's the noble practice. Yeah. This is when you when you understand the context, this is this is another one of those. It, this is it. So I mean, right view resolves itself in. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not mine. It's always right view. When I am um, not taking this moment personal, personally, I'm in right view. Mm -hmm. I'm a teacher, Kevin. I liked what uh, Brian was saying about sort of this reference point. How we've been talking about that and skillful and mindful reference point is experiencing life as life occurs and, and in right view. And, and we often talk about the personal experience of suffering as what, what Ram was sort of alluding to craving for, you know, me to be different in this moment or the world to be different in this moment. And that's how we experience stress as five clinging aggregates or anatta, and, and we can't figure out or at times we haven't been able to figure out why we're experiencing that stress, but right view describes the personal experience of liberation and the fact that it's yeah. only a view that it's, it comes down to each moment and your view in this moment. And that's like you said, that could be the most powerful <laughs> concept ever conveyed that the fact that, the world is arising and passing away. You're arising and passing away, and your views are arising and passing away. And what what do you have control of? You have control of the way you view things. And when in wrong view, we enter and remain in right view, like like Frank always used to say. So it's a great teaching. Thanks. Thank you, Dharma teacher Kevin. Dharma teacher David. That's a good place to end, John. Good place to end. That's the Dharma teaching. Uh, yeah, this is uh, it's an it's an amazing sutta, but the uh, not but in in this if I could just look a little bit better than I do, um, and then the the, the next seven uh, suttas in relation to the eightfold path is uh, I, I know it sounds self-aggrandizing because I'm, I'm the one to put this structured study, but I'm really excited about this particular structured study because of one sutta on each factor of the Four Noble Truths and each factor of the Eightfold Path. Uh, it's going to be another book, I think. So. Uh, but we'll continue it on this. Uh, continue it on Saturday. We'll finish with Meta as we always do, unless there's any other questions or comments. Just take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta in the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. 
May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank you, John. Peace. Thank you, John. See you, Jane. Bye. Bye. See you, Philippe. See you, Brian. See you, Jeff. Thank you. That was awesome. Thanks. Good to see you, Philippe. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.